chapter that we read, and we'll read again the words of Jesus in verse 36. This is on page 1008. And Jesus is now speaking to Jairus, the synagogue ruler, having just learned that his daughter was dead. Jesus says these words, Don't be afraid, just believe. A few years ago, Matthew's, uh, Mark's Gospel, the shortest of the four Gospels, was republished in an evangelistic booklet. So you had the message of the Gospel written out, and then you had Ma- Mark's Gospel at the end, and the title of the booklet was A Journey to Life. And that captures something significant about Mark's Gospel, because what we have here is the journey of Jesus to the cross. We pick up his life story when he's 30 years old. His preaching and teaching ministry begins when he's 30, and his crucifixion takes place when he's 33. So Mark's gospel takes us through key events in those final three years of Jesus' life, his journey to the cross and his journey to the empty tomb. But there's a second journey here. It's not just the journey of Jesus, but it's our own individual life journeys. Because this morning, we are here together, in the same building, at the same time, doing the same things, and we are encountering Jesus on the page of Mark's Gospel. We're encountering his journey, but we're also intersecting our journey with his. Now, I'm not sure what your journey is today, whether it's a journey of joy and happiness, whether it's a journey of sadness and sorrow, but at least consider this, that this morning, your life and his life have crisscrossed, have intersected. If you were to visit my country, where I'm from, if you were to visit New York City, which isn't too far from where I grew up, one of the great landmarks, one of the great tourists, or probably the greatest tourist attraction in that city is found at the corner of two streets. Found at the corner of 5th Avenue and 34th Street. And if you get to that intersection, all you need to do is look up, and you'll see the Empire State Building. You can't miss it. You walk down 5th Avenue, you turn at 34th Street, and you look up. Everywhere, it's just as obvious that you're now in front of this iconic building, the biggest, well, now the second biggest building in New York City. But the key is, you need to know where the intersection is, and you need to look up. Don't be like me a few years ago when I was in the city and I spoke to a New York City policeman. I said, look, I'm looking for the new Empire State Building. You're looking for the Empire State Building, buddy. You're right in front of it. Look up. And there it was. I was, I was looking at ground level, but I didn't look up. Because when you read Mark's Gospel or any of the four Gospels, you can't miss Jesus. You can't miss who he is. You can't miss what he has come to do. You can't miss the power, the compassion. You can't miss this story. But you can. I I was in New York City. I was right there, and I missed the Empire State Building. I was standing right in front of it. And people can read the gospel and miss the main point. You can miss the main story of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. And I'd like you to notice as we go through this chapter, we encounter three different people with three different problems, and Jesus meets each and every one of them at their very point of need. And he meets you this morning, whatever your situation might be. Jesus doesn't pretend that we're identical. 
He recognizes that our life stories are unique. Challenges, trials, difficulties, joys, triumphs, all different. And yet, he has something to say to each one of us. And as you read through Mark's gospel, you'll, re- you'll realize that Jesus is moving. There's a, an immediacy. There's a, a, an urgency about Jesus. He's going, he's doing, he's speaking, and he's always on the move. As you read through the gospel, Mark uses words like immediately and then and, and, and takes you through this journey that Jesus is moving. So this morning, your life story and his life story connect but he's moving on. The question is, are you moving with him? Because you can have this intersection this morning, and if your life remains unchanged, if your life remains the same as it ever was, then your encounter with Jesus is not a life-changing encounter. It was just an event, just an occasion. On one particular Sunday morning, you were in a place, you read a chapter, you heard a, a message about Jesus, but it didn't change your fundamental meaning of life or your purpose for life. But this morning we encounter three people that their meeting with Jesus changed them and changed them forever. We read of a man known to us now as Legion, possessed by evil spirits. We read of a synagogue ruler named Jairus with a sick daughter. And we read of a woman who had a persistent and debilitating issue of blood, uh, an illness that caused her to be weak. And each of these incidents is not just described, but Jesus explains, or rather Jesus instructs. He not only heals, because these are miracles, but these are miracles that each have a message. He gives us a word of instruction to go along with the miracle, because otherwise we don't understand these events. You see, the cross where Jesus was crucified, the cross requires some explanation. What happened there? The empty tomb requires an explanation. What happened there? Remember the disciples, the women and the disciples early in the morning, on Sunday morning, they went to the tomb and they met an angel and the angel says, he is not here. He is risen. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? They couldn't put two and two together, the empty tomb, the stone that was rolled back. They couldn't figure out what had happened. And you see, if the Bible was just a series of events, we couldn't understand. We couldn't figure it out. But Jesus punctuates each of these miracles with a message, with an instruction. And with you this morning, let's just look very simply at each of these individuals. We'll look first at Legion the man possessed by evil spirits. And Jesus makes it quite clear that there is evil in this world, the reality of evil. This world isn't all sweetness and light. This world isn't all about kindness and compassion. You don't need to look far if you're reading the daily newspaper, listening to the radio news, or watching on television. Inhumanity, cruelty, evil, darkness, lies, corruption... It's there on every page. It's there in every news report. And we see the heightened power of evil brought to bear in this life of this man. And Jesus encounters this man. And what do we know about the man? We know that this man was a danger. We know that this man was a danger to himself and a danger to others. 
I was visiting Bethany House. Bethany is a homeless shelter in Leith. And one of the workers there, who's been working there for many, many years, he was originally a resident of, of Bethany. He had a long-term drug, uh, drug addiction problem, in and out of prison. And he, by his own estimation, would have described himself you know, as a hard, tough man. And he said, if you had met me before I was a Christian, you'd be frightened. But what you see now is a different man. A man whose life has been changed. A man whose heart has been changed. A man whose direction has been changed. And when he describes the old life, it's hard to imagine this man being a tough guy. This man being you know, somebody that you'd be afraid of. Because here's some guy, that, Doogie, that you want to see every Monday night. I'm delighted when I see him because there's a word of welcome, a word of encouragement, a warm invitation to Bethany and to everyone who's visiting there. And we see the power of evil, the danger that this man is to others, the danger that this man is to himself. And Jesus encounters him. But notice in verse six, 7 that this man possessed by evil, that somehow, some way, these evil spirits know who Jesus is. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. It's interesting in the Bible that those who were opposed to Jesus, they were the ones that more readily figured out what Jesus had come to do. They more quickly realized what Jesus was saying. The disciples were often slow to figure these things out, but the demons are under no illusion who Jesus is. And later in the story, when Jesus is arrested and tried, his enemies are quite clear that he's making claims to be none, nothing less than God's one and only son. Jesus encounters this man, and Jesus says in verse 8, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Power. Authority. He speaks with power, and the demons obey him. I don't know if you've seen the new movie Lincoln, or it's not that new anymore, but there's a scene in Lincoln where the president needs something to be done. He needs a certain vote to be won. And he says to one of the congressmen, he says, I am the president of the United States, clothed with immense power. You will do this for me. And they did it. They recognized his power, they recognized his authority, and they did what he told them to do. The demons recognize who Jesus is, recognize his power, recognize his authority, and they do what he tells them to do. The demons begged, uh, begged to be sent into the, uh, not to be sent out of the area. They begged to go into the pigs. Jesus sends them into the pigs. But notice Jesus' interaction with the man. He speaks authoritatively to the demons, but he speaks compassionately to the man. He asks the man his name. Now, if you're going to have a friendship or a relationship, I would dare say that you need to know a person's name. You're very unlikely to be friends with somebody that you don't know their name. You're very unlikely to have a close relationship with somebody and kind of say, well, you know, what's her name or, or what's his name? Or, you know, names are important. Jesus' name is important. Your name is important. And Jesus wants to know this man's name. My name is Legion, he said, for, for we are many. So you notice that this powerful Jesus has compassion, has concern, has, has interest. 
So he can speak authoritatively to the demons, and they obey him, and he can speak compassionately to, to, to the man. And you'll see at the very end of the story, when the pigs ran off into the water, they were drowned. There were two requests that were made of Jesus. In verse 16, those who had seen it, the pigs running into the water, and told what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs, then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. We don't really want you here anymore, Jesus. We're kind, of a, we're kind of frightened by what you've just done. We're kind of uneasy about who you are, and we would really prefer if you would move on to somewhere else. Now, Jesus respects you. He respects your choice. He respects your decision. You have choices to make and decisions to make, and the decisions that you make, he will honor. Those who say no to Jesus, ultimately, he will accept that decision. But when the end comes and you're standing before him, he will confirm that choice that you've made. So you see that he began to get into the boat. He was getting into the boat. He was leaving that region. He honored their request. They didn't want him anymore. And it's a solemn thing when you say to Jesus, I'd, ask, I'd really prefer if you leave. Your words disturb me. Your actions unsettle me. Your, your claims upset me. And I'd really prefer if you wouldn't have anything more to do with me and, and this area. But notice that there was a second response, and this is interesting, that the man who had been demon-possessed, that this man who was now in his right mind, he was dressed he was back to his senses. And he says, I want to go with you. Wherever you go, I want to go. Now, wouldn't you think this would be a request that Jesus would say yes to? And sometimes we have ideas and plans and we say, God, this is what I want. This is where I want to go. I want to serve you. I want to be with you. I want to do your work. And we sort of say to God, I want to do this, this, and that. And it sounds good and it looks good. But we're told here that Jesus did not let him. He said, no, you're not to come with me. But he did do this. He says, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So you see, Jesus isn't explaining the miracle. He's not explaining what he did, but he is instructing Legion now. He says, I want you to go to your people and I want you to tell them. I want you to tell them a message of mercy, that God has done this for you, and thereby God can do this for them. He's helped you. He's healed you. He's restored you to your sound mind and body, and he can do that for your people. So he sends this man to the people who knew him best. And sometimes that's the most challenging response of Jesus. Go and tell your family. Go and tell your friends. Oh, by all means, we need to send people to the remotest parts of the world, but if you want to go to the remotest parts of the world to serve Jesus, somebody could easily ask, okay, but what are you doing here? You're in Edinburgh right now. How are you serving him here? You're in a family. How are you serving him in your family? You have a group of friends. What about them? These are the people that know you best. By all means, have aspirations to serve Jesus, but never lose sight of what you can do here and what you can do now. So the first miracle is the power of Jesus over evil. You see, this is not a fair fight. And you might think, 
a man possessed by a legion of demons. A legion, I think, was 6,000. The Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. And you think, a legion of demons and Jesus? 6,000 to one? That's not a fair fight. Well, you're right, it's not a fair fight because the power of Jesus was such that no matter how many demons that were possessing this man, that when he commanded, they obeyed. So the fight between Jesus and Satan, between good and evil, is not a fair fight. Jesus is far more powerful than any evil force. Jesus is far more powerful, far more able to do what anyone else or anything else can accomplish. Miracle number two and miracle number three are kind of intertwined. And this is something that's quite interesting with Mark, is that Mark often tells a story, and there's another story in between. Some of Shakespeare's plays are like this, where you have a play within a play, the Midsummer Night's Dream, you start off with a, with a play, and then all of a sudden you've got another play in the middle of it. Well, here's a miracle within a miracle. The first miracle of this pair is Jairus. Here's the powerful man. Now, by and large, the, the, the synagogue rulers, the leaders, didn't have much to do with Jesus. There were exceptions, of course. Nicodemus in John 3 was an exception. Jairus here in Mark 5 is an exception. And notice that it was not his own problem. Legion was possessed by the evil spirits, but Jairus came to Jesus because of someone he loved, his daughter. His daughter was sick. His daughter was dying. And no matter what he might have thought about Jesus, he came to Jesus on behalf of someone else. And maybe you can identify with Jairus. Maybe your life is going well. Maybe there's nothing that you could ask for more. But you're concerned about someone else, a member of your family, a friend. And you realize that you can't help them as much as you would like to help them. The problems are too great. The difficulties are too, too many. The challenges are too complex. And maybe that is your connection today with Jesus. You realize that you need help for someone else. There's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to turn. And just like Jairus, you come to Jesus on behalf of someone else. But in the midst of this healing, in the midst of this second miracle that Jesus is going to perform, we see a third person. And this is a story that would have been, that we kind of read, and it seems a bit awkward, seems a bit embarrassing. You know, what's going on here? But this was more than awkward and more than embarrassing for the person. Because here's a woman who is physically weakened over 12 years. Here's a woman who is financially impoverished because she spent all she had to get better and yet she grew worse. And here's a woman who would have been very much isolated, ostracized, separated, couldn't take part in the religious life of the day, couldn't be uh, involved as others could be involved. I mean, if, if we could try to bring this up to date, this woman would not be allowed to come here to church at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Not welcome. Not invited. I'm sorry, we'd love you to come, and if you get better, you can come. But she wasn't, and she couldn't, and she didn't. But she had one thing that set her apart, and that is hope. And maybe this morning, that's something you would desperately love to have. Hope. Hope for today. Hope for tomorrow. Hope in the midst of life and all of its complexities and all of its problems. Because she tried. Here, here was a woman who tried. 
In verse 26, she suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. There are some problems that doctors can't fix. That was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Now, if you look throughout the Bible for a promise or an invitation that Jesus gives, saying that if you touch my clothes, you will be healed, you won't find it. It's not there. Yet somehow, some way, she reasoned, even if I just touch this man, even just touch the very hem of his clothing, somehow, some way, he can make me better. That's hope. And that hope moved her to reach out. She reached out to Jesus for herself. She had tried all the doctors. Twelve years, she got poorer and she got weaker. There was nowhere else to go and there was nowhere else to turn. Maybe you've come to that point in your life. You've tried the doctors. You've tried the counselors. You've tried your friends, your family. You've read the self-help books. There's a fellow today who's from the southeast London. He's now worshiping at a church up here in Nidri. His name is Paul. And I met him a few months ago. And he said to me, he said, for 20 years, I tried 12-step programs. You know, 12-step programs, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. And these programs are good insofar as they help people address the problems of their lives. And he says, you know, after 20 years, I realized they don't work. They don't work. They, they don't solve my drug habit. They don't enable me to be released from this addiction. He said, two weeks ago, I was born again. I came to believe in Jesus. And he said, you know what? That works. That changes the way he lives. That changes his, his lifestyle. It changes his attitude. 20 years trying all the different programs that were offered... And he came to hear about Jesus, and he came to believe in Jesus, and his life was changed by trusting in Jesus. That's the power. That's the power that Jesus has to make the hopeless and the helpless healed and whole. She reached out, and immediately, this word immediately is a key word in, in Mark's gospel, immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Jesus doesn't let her go. Jesus doesn't allow this healing to take place in silence or in secret. And maybe this morning, maybe you are a secret follower of Jesus. You believe, you trust, you follow, but you're silent. Nobody else knows. And you know why nobody else knows? Because you never told them. Here was a woman who was healed. Here was a woman who reached out in faith. And here was a woman who was made whole. And Jesus stops and says, Who touched my clothes? Now, the disciples don't get it, as they often didn't get it. You know, you're crowded around with people. How do you ask, Who touched me? And Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. He explains what just happened. It was faith. It wasn't the physical touching of garments. It was reaching out in faith. How much faith did she have? She had enough faith to reach out to Jesus. How much knowledge did she have? 
She had enough knowledge to trust in Jesus. So this morning, if you feel that you don't know enough, if you feel that you don't understand enough, maybe this woman's experience can encourage you. She knew that she needed help. And she knew that there was nowhere else and no one else who could help. And somehow, someway, she thought, this man Jesus can help. And she reaches out. And that's the illustration that Jesus uses. Your faith. Faith is relying on him. Faith is trusting in him. Faith is reaching out to him. Your faith has healed you. And then he gives a word of benediction, a word of blessing. He says, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Twelve years she suffered. Twelve years, no peace. Twenty years, Paul tried the 12-step programs. No peace, no release. A relationship with Jesus brings release. A relationship with Jesus brings freedom. A relationship with Jesus brings peace. But the story isn't over. Remember, Jesus was on a mission of mercy already. And doesn't this remind us that Jesus has time? If you were going to help somebody in desperate need, and somebody comes into your path and says, I need your help just now, I would answer, I can't help you now because I'm busy. I'm doing something important. Can't you see? There's a daughter, there's a, there's a girl who's dying. I don't have time for you now. In fact, you've been suffering for 12 years. Another day or two won't matter much. But Jesus' time for the woman in the midst of his journey to Jairus' daughter. So you might think this morning, there's a lot of people here. And there's a lot of people who represent a lot of families and who may have a lot of problems. Why would Jesus be interested in me? He's got a lot of other responsibilities. He's got a lot of other things on his mind. The story of the woman reminds us that no matter what, he has time. Again, you could look through scripture and find, trying to find a situation where Jesus said, I'm sorry, I'm busy. I don't have time now. I don't have time to help you. I don't have time to heal you. I don't have time for you just now. You will not find that in the Bible because it's not there. And you will not find that in your own experience if you trust in Jesus. He always has time. But the story of the synagogue ruler. When they finally get to the house, we're told that the story is over. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? This is the difference between the other two miracles. Legion was in trouble. Legion was cutting himself. Legion was in danger, but at least Legion was alive. The woman was poor and was weak, but at least she was alive. Now Jairus' daughter was sick, was dying, and was now dead. So if you think of these three great opponents, evil, disease, and now death, well, surely Jesus has met his match now. He may be able to cast out demons, and he may be able to heal the sick, but there's nothing that he can do in the face of death, because death, of course, has the final word. Or does it? Does Jesus have the power over death? Does he have the power to say to the dead, live? Does he have the power to conquer this greatest of all enemies, this enemy, this reality that each one of us will one day face? Can he say to the dead, live? Their natural response is, don't bother him. There's nothing more he can do here. We've moved from a sick bed, we've moved now to a funeral situation. We don't need a healer, we need an undertaker. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of evil. 
Legion. Don't be afraid of disease, woman with the issue of blood. Don't be afraid, Jairus, of death. Just believe. Now this phrase, just believe, is something that modern people can sometimes identify with. We're told you've got to believe or you have to have faith. But the question is, in what? My favorite team growing up, I like baseball, my favorite team was the New York Mets. They very rarely ever won. But there was this time in 1969, I wasn't, I don't remember that, I was alive, but I don't remember that. The 1969 Mets won the World Series. It's considered one of the miracles of modern baseball that this team that was hopeless somehow got it together and won the series. But the, the, the tagline or, or, or the phrase that captured the 69 Mets was, was this phrase, you've got to believe. Now, I guess in that situation, you've got to believe in this team of, of nine players that goes onto the field. You've got to believe in the pitcher. You've got to believe in the batter. But this idea that you've got to believe kind of resonates. But faith is not abstract. We aren't saved or we aren't entering into a relationship with Jesus by some vague belief or some vague faith. Because when Jesus says you've got to believe, you have to ask yourself, believe what? What's he talking about? Well, if you go back to Mark chapter 1, we kind of work our way back for a moment. You go back to Mark chapter 1 and we get a clue. Mark 1 at verse 15. Jesus' first sermon. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus is saying we've got to believe, and belief is rooted in something called the good news. We've got to repent, meaning turning from our path. We're going the wrong direction. We've got to believe, and we're told that we need to believe the good news. What's the good news? We'll go back to the very beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark 1.1, and we read there the beginning of the gospel, which is that word good news in one word, about Jesus Christ the Son of God. So if you work your way back, when Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe, what he is saying to Jairus is, what is required here is a personal trust in Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. What has Jesus come to do? He's come to set people free. He's come to heal the sick. He's come to restore sight to the blind. He's come to cast out the demons. He's come to give life to dead people. Don't be afraid, Jairus. Just believe. And then Jesus restores this dead girl to life. Notice how the weepers and wailers soon become laughers. The emotions of this world can quickly fluctuate. Remember when Jesus was welcomed into the city on Palm Sunday? Everybody was shouting Hosanna. Everybody was welcoming Jesus. Five days later, they were saying crucify. Jesus comes into a scene of weeping and wailing. He then says, the child is not dead but asleep, and they begin to laugh. But Jesus raises this girl back to life. Spiritually speaking, you and I are dead. We are physically alive, we are breathing, we are respiring, our brains are working, our hearts are pumping blood. But spiritually speaking, the Bible tells us that we are dead, dead in sins, dead in transgressions. We need that life-giving message of salvation. We need that life-giving command that Jesus and Jesus only can provide. There are many things that can cause us fear, many things that can cause us upset. We can be afraid of sickness. We can be afraid of dying. We can be afraid of evil. We can be afraid of tomorrow 
and what it may or may not hold. But Jesus is calling you and me today into a relationship based on faith and based on trust. He is demonstrating his power to heal, but in each of these examples, he is reminding us of who he is, of who we are, and how we can enter into a living and a permanent relationship with him. So whether it's Legion, or whether it's the woman with this issue of blood, or whether it's Jairus and his daughter, maybe this morning there's a point of contact where you say, I understand exactly what they are going through. I understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. And maybe, just maybe, he can help me too. Trust him. Believe in him. Place your faith in this Jesus because of who he is, because of what he has done, that he is clothed with immense power and he is clothed with immense compassion. And for those of us who do trust, he encourages us to keep trusting, to keep following, to make him known to others, to reveal this great message of good news to those today who are very much under the power of evil, to those today who are without hope and without God, to those today who need light and who need love and who need meaning and who need purpose. If we don't share that message, if we don't point them in the way of Jesus, how will they ever find out? Mark, a young man who followed Jesus. Mark, a young man who traveled with Paul and with Barnabas. He wrote this gospel message for our benefit and for the benefit of countless people who have read the story of Jesus and found themselves placing their faith and their trust in him. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Let us pray. Father, hear us, O Lord, and answer us. Enable us to trust in Jesus for ourselves. Remind us that it's not about who we are. Remind us it's not about what we have done. Remind us it's not about anything that we might be able to do in the future. But enable us to hear that voice speaking to us here, speaking to us now, personally and powerfully. Enable us to follow him and trust him. Enable us to make him known to others. And may we recognize that he deserves the praise, he deserves the glory, and he deserves the honor. We ask all these things now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.